I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that's blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that's worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 101, which along with Psalm 109 are the psalms appointed for today, Wednesday, June the 1st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our look today at the prophecy of Ezekiel. Today we're in the 11th chapter, verses 14 to 25, also in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 17 to 24, and then in the epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. So Ezekiel, remember, had been prophesying destruction to uh, Jerusalem, prophesying uh, destruction and punishment to be brought on the houses both of Israel, the northern kingdom, after the, after the uh, kingship of Solomon. Remember, the kingdom was divided into two parts— Ten tribes up in the north and two tribes in the south, and so the, um, the 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 judgment is against both groups. And it's odd in some ways because you can look and say, "Well, those are the lost tribes; they don't exist anymore." Well, they did, and they do, and they exist in God's eyes. He knows who these people are, whether they even recognize it themselves. <clears throat> so, in the in this prophecy, what we're gonna what we're gonna see is, is this is a, a judgment now is not just against the sins of the past, but it's for the sins of the present. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, so it, it, beginning close to you and then spreading out to the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. In other words, that, that we are the ones to whom the Lord gave this. And the, the proof is, well, we're here and you're not. And so they're saying to, to those who are, who are not in Jerusalem that you don't have any portion in this. And there's, there's always a pride, right? I mean, there's, there's certainly a pride of people who live in New York City or Los Angeles or San Francisco or, you know, other places that are the big cities that are the, the, the shapers of society and the shapers of um, the culture. There's a pride that frequently comes with that, that, that sees themselves as as the benighted the anointed ones <clears throat> and and here that that's judged and it's brought low because what they've done is they've looked down on their brothers they've looked down on those who are not in Jerusalem and it's the same attitude that you see in Jesus's day frankly they have no respect for anybody from Galilee they don't see them as the same sort of people they see themselves as the the keepers of the flame the ones who who uh, stand above the others simply because they're in Jerusalem they're in the capital and so that's what he's saying is, is that they look down on everybody else. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, though I remove them, the brothers, far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they've gone. So even though they're not there where you are, I'm still with them in the same way that I'm with you, no less. Therefore, thus Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I'll gather you from among the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. So these people who think themselves to be the possessors of the land and the unique inheritors of all things and the, those who stand above all the others are, are getting ready to learn a lesson. And that is, you're going into exile and I'm bringing these back. 
And he, he says it again and again and again that he's going to bring people from the east and the west and the north and the south and bring them back to the land. And, and, but first, he's got to throw out those who are there because of their sins. So he's not saying that you're better. He's not saying you're worse. He's saying that, that, that you are definitely not the inheritor simply because you have possession of something. No, because it's his to give and his to take away. He says, therefore, say, so, so to, the, to the, the ones who are out of the land, he says, I will gather you. And when they come here, they'll remove from it all its detestable things and its abominations. So you've made a mess of it. They're going to come and restore it. <clears throat> and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I'll give them a heart of flesh. But they may walk in, their, in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They'll be a different people. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within them so that they'll keep my statutes and my rules and obey them, and they'll be my people, and I'll be their God. So he hasn't forgotten them simply because they're not in the land. No, God remembers them. He knows them because they are his people, but he wants them to truly be his people. And the only way you can truly be his people is if he is your God and you're obedient and walk in his ways. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I'll bring their deeds on their own heads, declares the Lord God. So that's who he's talking about, is the people who are in Jerusalem now, who are so proud, but who have set the Lord as nothing in their eyes. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. Jerusalem stood on the mountain. It's on the east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, where the exiles are. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. In other words, the, the, the Lord closed out that vision and that promise to these exiles to bring them back from the places where they're scattered and come back and rebuild Jerusalem and, and rebuild the nation in order that he might be worshipped and he might have the preeminence, which, is, which he didn't have in this day. And it's so often the case, the pride of man uh, becomes uh, the neglect of God or the denial of God and the worship of other things. And it's easy to tell what we worship because it's just what do we give our time and attention to? What is it we value? And it's typically pretty easy to see what our values are. Um, Just look at the way we spend our time and our treasure. That's the best way to find out what's the most important thing in somebody's life. In the gospel, remember Jesus had sent out the 72 in yesterday's reading, uh, and they had come back rejoicing, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. He is rejoicing over the work that these have done, that the demons have um, responded to him, and they've submitted themselves to the disciples in the name of Jesus. And so Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And that's very similar to the disputed ending of Mark, where he talks about drinking poison and handling snakes and all that kind of stuff that people base their religions on, um, or religious practices at least on, and 
the, the, the faith that they have. And it's, it's an interesting thing that, that I've, I've read. There's a book called Salvation on Sand Mountain by a guy named Dennis Covington. And he, um, after a trial of one of those pastors, the snake handlers, um, he began to be curious about them. And so he, he ended up hanging out with them a lot. He actually handled snakes himself at one point, uh, got caught up in the sort of the ecstatic part of this. But, there's, but if you read it, you know, there's a great pride in among that community, that they are more real Christians than uh, we are if we don't handle snakes, because they're they're willing to to take up these things and they believe God in ways that we don't believe God. God never prescribed that <laughs> as worship. It, it it fits more in line with Paul when he's bitten by the snake uh, in at the towards the end of the book of Acts, and he survives, and the people there take that as a witness to the power of God. And so it's we're not to be proud of the way that we worship or anything about our faith because it doesn't belong to us. It's a gift itself. So pride can be the biggest problem that we have. It can be the thing that 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 takes away what God does through us and then makes it into that we're special in some way. And that so you can take pride in all manner of things. Right, um, you you can take pride in in you, nobody has the gift of healing, for instance. People can have a healing ministry because frequently God manifests Himself through that person and through their ministry in order to heal. But but it doesn't mean they have a healing ministry. God's the healer. Period. End of sentence. And and Jesus gets at that here because He says, "I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you." Nevertheless. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that God has saved you. Rejoice that God knows you. And rejoice that you will have eternal life. Because that's all gift. It's easy to take pride in the exercise of a gift if we, if we neglect to realize that it's God who is the giver of the gift. And, and as he says to the people in Jerusalem in the Ezekiel passage, I gave it, I can take it away. It is not yours as a permanent possession. I watched um, a man that I respected um, sin, go outside counsel that was given to him by godly people, and, and sin uh, not in an egregious way, but he, but he refused to accept the discipline and the admonition uh, and the counsel of the church. It, it had been a powerful preacher, and then he lost it because of that sin, because his failure to submit himself to godly admonition in the same way that he, he required others to submit to him because he'd been a form, formerly been a bishop in the church. But I watched God take away the gift of that powerful preaching. And it, it was a sad, sad thing. It was sometimes painful when he preached after that. In the same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In other words, you, you didn't show this to the, the ones who were wise and understanding, in those, those leaders over there in Jerusalem. No, 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 you showed them to little children. These people here, these people who are, who are simply following me because they believe in me, not those people who are seeking after power. But, um, but these, so so he's saying that that it's there, there's a rebuke in here of Jerusalem and of the leadership in Jerusalem particularly, and and it's legitimate. 
to read it that way because that those are the ones who ultimately reject him and, and insist that the others reject them, this, this crowd who goes along with those leaders. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, the, the, the Holy Spirit is, has to be given to us to know these things. And at this point, he says, no one knows the Son, not even those who are there. At this point, no, because none of them anticipate um, what's going to happen next. And so at this point, they're not fully on board with the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so they can't know him in that intimate way until they see this final revelation uh, at the cross and the resurrection. Then turning to the disciples, he said, Privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And that's true of us. I mean, they saw Jesus in the flesh, but we, who live on the other side of Pentecost, the other side of Easter, the other side of the resurrection, have seen. We see by eyes of faith the truth about the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. And it's where we need to to park ourselves, is in that place, and, and instead of being like the disciples and trying to figure out who's the greatest, because, well greatest no longer matters since the coming of jesus christ into the world greatest is not something we should even think about it's not even a category that should enter our thought no matter what great ministry we might have we should never consider ourselves as anything at all because of jesus in the epistle um, here, remember yesterday, he has, he has said that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and here he's going to undertake to explain exactly what that means. He says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, that's Genesis 18, uh, where he rescued his nephew Lot from the kings, uh, the three kings who had... Um, essentially taking him hostage after the defeat of four after they had defeated four kings abraham and 200 of his um, equipped military men actually went and and won the battle against those kings and he retrieved lot and so then he comes and this king this priest melchizedek comes out and abraham offers him a tithe of everything he captured he says that that this king this priest of most high god met abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham, to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's Melchizedek. And then he's also the king of Salem. So Melchizedek would transfer, translate to king of righteousness, but he's the king of Salem. And the word Salem means shalom. It's peace. So he's the king of peace. His name is the king of righteousness, but he's also the king of peace. He's without fear, or father, sorry, or mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly offices, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. And, and the reason for that is that was their portion. 
that that they got a tenth of or they received a tithe from the people because they were servants of God. The people got land and then the priests and the Levites got produce from that land, a portion of the produce from that land for their support and sustenance. He says, this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one who, of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. And this is pretty typical the way the way the Jewish people understand um, this whole situation of progeny. So they said, let me read that again. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham to Melchizedek, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And so the the one thing we do know is is that Cain is the first murderer in the Bible, right? He murdered his brother Abel. But that's not the way Jews would look at it. They would look at him as the first mass murderer in the history of mankind. Because not only did he kill his brother Abel, he killed all the potential people who would have come from Abel. So Abel and his seed. He would have destroyed an entire line of people. He is a, an incredible mass murderer to have done that very thing. And so in that same way, that's what they're saying here, because Levi would would be counted as having given tithes because Abraham, from whom he came, gave tithes. So that would be binding upon him. He would have done it in no less a way because it would have been part of his inheritance otherwise. Now, if perfection had been attainable, perfection, that's an important word, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So if, if perfection were possible under the law, there wouldn't be the need for a different priest. They would have just come from the line of Aaron. But nobody thought perfection was possible. That's the reason for the sacrifices, because that those were set up because nobody expected that anyone would actually reach perfection. You can be a righteous man without being a perfect man. That's something that needs to be understood, is, is that a sadiq, a righteous man, is not a reference to somebody who is perfect under the law. Nobody thought anybody was perfect under the law. That, that's the reason, the whole reason, there's a sacrificial system, and then there's a whole reason for the scapegoat. It's because sin's known and unknown. The things we don't even recognize as sin, but we know intuitively that we sin, whether we say we do or not. There are things that we know that we've done that we're not even sort of aware of that are sinful. And so that he's, so perfection is not something to be attained under the law. There's only one who is perfect. There's one perfect being in the universe, and that's God himself. So he says there's there's got to be a different priesthood. That can, that can be the priest over the perfection, that can bring about perfection through his priesthood. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one who to, of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. He's speaking of both Jesus and Melchizedek. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. In connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So he's a priest— but he's got to be of a different order of priests because the, the priesthood over Israel is a Levitical order. And Jesus is not in the tribe of Levi. He's in the tribe of Judah. 
This becomes even more evident, he says, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. He, he's, he's making a lot of Melchizedek here. It's a, it's a uh, difficult article or, or, um, uh, argument to sustain and to understand even today. But, but he's saying that Jesus is different from the Levitical priesthood. And so the only thing that he can compare him to is this other priest, the only one God's people ever recognized as a true priest of the Most High God. <clears throat> for it's witnessed of him, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that comes from Psalm 110. And it is an odd reference to suddenly find out of the middle of nowhere. But, it, but it's clearly referring to a Messianic king in that context. And so it's important then that we recognize Jesus as other and different and greater than anything that's ever come before him. And there's no comparison that we can make to anyone who has ever come before or after him, that he stands alone, period, end of sentence. And that, that's the reason that he can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. He's the only perfect man who ever lived. He is the only way not Buddha, not some other way, just Jesus. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand. And what Jesus wants us to understand in that context is it's grace and love, not any particular merit we have in ourselves, but the merits are all in him. And so it's just by faith. You can't work your way into salvation. It means that once you're saved, you want to work because you want to serve the one who has given you that grace.